Yeah. So it's basically my life. It's since 2015, I've golfed three, four times a week and I take 20 weeks of vacation a year. So if you golf three, four times a week, then there's only roughly 24 hours left in the week to work. And if you take 20 vacations a year, then there's only roughly around seven months of non-vacation time to work. So my mindset, what I've built is 24 hours a week, seven months a year. So what lenses did I have to look through to build the systems, models, and technologies to build a lifestyle where I only had to work 24 hours a week, seven months a year in mortgage and make a very blessed multi-million dollar income from mortgage. The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Broker Nation, Scott Peckford here. Today in the show, I have Wally Illiberry. And Wally is a top originator out of Dallas, Texas, did about 400 million between him and his team uh, in 2022. And absolutely fantastic conversation. I'm telling you, I'm gonna go back and listen to this again. I already shared it with my team before the show even came out. And we dive into talking about how to build a team, the difference between a visionary and an integrator, how to find good people, how to create a self-replicating training system. I'm absolutely thrilled with this conversation and just the gold nuggets that I picked up from it. And Wally is one sharp dude. One of the things he talks about, he's got a book coming out, which I'm going to be absolutely getting called 24-7. And the book title, it's not work 24 you know, hours a day, seven days a week. It's he works 24 hours a week, seven months a year. And that's because he's built fantastic systems and processes. And my mind is literally blown. When I finished my conversation with him, I was like, dude, this has been unreal. So I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. Also, I'm going to be talking to Ben McCabe from Bloom about renting versus owning and the conversation that you have with clients around reverse mortgages. Before we jump into this episode, I want to give a shout out to our title sponsor, Finmo. Finmo is a Canadian mortgage application, document collection, submission platform. Very easy for borrowers to use. As they're filling out that app, it's automatically knows exactly what document they need it sends them a list and you may not know this but often when people are filling out applications they actually get the documents so if they can answer the questions correctly at least the good clients do and they'll send you the documents and so you can get that application come in documents or a bunch of them already attached to the file it's fantastic it's also got smart submission notes when you go to hit submit to a lender it's pulling key data from that application putting in the notes making it easy for your underwriter to give you a yes check them out at lendescom slash binmo and check out this conversation with wallet Hey, Wally, welcome to the show. Hey, man. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate you, Scott. So, hey, we were chatting before we turned the recorder. I got so many questions, like many, many questions I want to ask you. We won't be able to do them all. Maybe we'll do a part two at some point. But so what I'd love to first is tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got into the mortgage business. Yeah, so I graduated high school and most like everybody else trying to figure out what I can do. Grades were so poor that I couldn't even get in college. So I got a mortgage as a loan officer assistant when I was 19 years old. And 24 years later, made it a career. Absolutely love it. How long did it take to go from being an assistant to being a producer or originator? What was that path like? That's probably say a year and a half, almost two years. So this is back in 99. So my loan officer that I worked for, it allowed me to sit in a room with a tape recorder and record his face-to-face loan applications. And when I go home, I'd start transcribing what he said in his applications and I saw consistencies, yep. which made it into scripts. So it took me probably about a year, year and a half to take his words to start coming out of my mouth as we duplicated his models and processes. And sound like you, so that it wasn't just like you, right? Interesting. And this was back, nowadays, it'd be so easy to record and transcribe. Like (laughs) you could just, you know, like this can be transcribed so easy, right? Okay. So tell me what your family, where are you located? Like, where's your mortgage business right now today? 
Yeah, so I am in Dallas, Texas, a suburb in Dallas called Plano. And I uh, married an amazing woman named Nikki, married 18 years together, and we've got two great boys. We call him Braden, Braden the Brave. He's 17. We're looking at colleges now, and which is uh, a sad and fun experience together. And then we call him Alexander, Alexander the Great. And uh, he's 15. So we're learning how to drive and scaring the crap out of death. Right. That's hilarious. That's great. I love that you've got like aspirational names for them. And so you've got a branch. Tell me about your branch and what kind of production you do, your personal team does, as well as your branch, just again, to get a sense of like what that looks like, if you don't mind. Yeah, so personal team does around 200 million in loans. And the, the branch would do between four, 450 million in loans all together. I've got 11 loan officers in the branch. We're really, really super focused on empowerment, hence our name and power lending, E-M-P-O-W-E-R, lending. And yeah. when that's our name and that becomes our culture. And so we do from weekly masterminds to here's one thing that's really helped us a ton. All the models and systems and standards that I've built to build a $200 million mortgage team, I've taken those model systems and standards and helped a $25 million producer go from 25 million to 45 million to 75 million, and they've continued to scale. So reduplicating what I've built into other loan officers, this has become my passion. Right. When you say empower is your thing. So how do you define empower? Like what's your well, definition of it? Our, our team culture is super simple. Your opportunity is your responsibility. Your opportunity is your responsibility. So what that means is I'll provide you all the tools, all the systems, all the technologies, all the manuals, all the scripts, all the email templates, everything from A to Z to build a $100 million mortgage team if that's what you want to accomplish. Or if you want to accomplish a $50 million mortgage team and take 20 weeks of vacation off a year like I do, then it's a different structure. So when we say that your opportunity is your responsibility, we'll customize the partnership with every loan officer, no offense or buts. Right. Okay. And then tell me about what's your work schedule like? Like, you know, this is also unique, at least from what I've observed <laughs> of other yeah, so, brokers. Yeah, I probably spend maybe five hours or five hours on the light side, 10 hours a week in mortgage tops, tops from A to Z. And then I usually spend another five to 10 hours a week. I own 11 apartment complexes and run three other businesses outside of mortgage. So I usually golf three, four times a week. It's kind of my escape, what I love doing. And my older son plays on a high school golf team. So if I'm golfing three to four times a week, and then the, this is kind of the story of my book that I'm writing, which I just got the uh, the title trademark, which I was super excited about. But uh, the book is 24-7 Mindset. And when you tell people about 24-7 Mindset, most people think it's what? What comes to mind, Scott? Time. Oh, it's, it's what I'm doing, man. Flat out, like, you know, grinding every day. So. Yeah. How do you define a 24-7 mindset? Yeah, so it's basically my life. It's since 2015, I've golfed three, four times a week, and I take 20 weeks of vacation a year. So if you golf three, four times a week, then there's only roughly 24 hours left in the week to work. And if you take 20 vacations a year, then there's only roughly around seven months of non-vacation time to work. So my mindset, what I've built is 24 hours a week, seven months a year. So what lenses did I have to look through to build the systems, models, and technologies to build a lifestyle where I only had to work 24 hours a week, seven months a year in mortgage, and make a very blessed multi-million dollar income from mortgage? Right. Okay. So one of the questions I asked you prior to the recording was, what would your friend say is your superpower? What would they say? I'm curious. It's definitely not golf, but I enjoy it. I would say team building. You know, when we talked about the book earlier, 
you know, Rocket Fuel, phenomenal book. If you're an entrepreneur or you're a loan officer trying to build an amazing book. So if you look at my personal assessment through the uh, rocketfuel.com, I fall in the category of 50% integrator and 50% visionary. I'm a visionary that, that dreams big, but understands how to integrate with bite-sized pieces. So the superpower I have is team building. But when you do team building, it's not just creating an organizational chart. It's having the right people in the right seat on the bus and then how to pull them with vision instead of push them with motivation. Okay, so this is a topic that's very near and dear to my heart because we're rapidly scaling, as I was saying to you. So what is your process for finding people? Because I agree with you, people are the thing and you've got to build them and empower them and train them. But let's start even beginning. How do you actually find the right fit? Or do you have a process or what does that look like? Absolutely. So let's make it even simpler. So in 2015, I launched something called Team Wall University. It's not an accredited university, but that's why I labeled it and I was very clear about it. Team Wall University takes a loan officer that has zero mortgage experience and within 12 months, giving them a six-figure income and opportunity to be on the team. So what was great about that is I went to the top five universities that are around me here in Dallas and found out who's a graduating class that is about to graduate that's looking for an opportunity. So as I was able to get candidates from the top universities around me, what I realized is a mistake that I made earlier in the team building process is I found somebody I liked and I hired them. Well, who do you like? You like people like yourself. What you realize oh, yeah. is you don't want to hire people like yourself. If I hire people like myself or all running around with their head cut off and it's the big, they're all golfing yeah. three days a week and you're like, what the heck? How's work going to get done? You know, <laughs> well, but, I'm 24 seven, baby. You won't to be here seven months. You're like, I oh, know. But I'd say the biggest thing I learned is let's just take the disc profile. Let's make it simple for everyone. Disc profile. So I'm an ID. So an ID is influence then dominance. Now, what I learned that opposite of me is someone that's an SC. Someone's about systems and someone that's about conformity. They want to follow a model and they want to have a roadmap. Once an SC is confident, they come across as a high D in the marketplace. So when these college students are about to graduate, I picked the people that were, when we do the behavioral assessment style, that were SCs, taught them my model, which is how I handled everything from a lead app to a high trust call to a lock call to a mortgage edge presentation, everything from A to Z. And they wanted to follow the model because it was built on best practices. So when they spoke in the marketplace- They weren't innovating. If you give that to me, I would drive you crazy probably because I'd what if, yeah. and but you don't want people like me. I don't uh, want people to what if me. I want people to follow my model, then top grade my model over time, but you still have to master the model before you try to top grade. Right. What do you mean by top grade the model? So over time, innovation happens. And if you're not innovating and you're not allowing your team to customize and top grade your model- then you're going to fall by the wayside, especially through technology, especially through efficiencies. And there was modules before each teammate can go from loan officer assistant to production partner, from production partner to senior production partner, from production partner to production manager. Two things that happened. They had to train the person that I hired to replace them, number one, which gave me back leverage. Number two, they had to make the business run 10% more efficient before they went to the next level. Those are my two conditions. One, train your replacement so it doesn't fall back on my lap. Number two is how can that role in that business become 10% more efficient at minimum through you helping customize it? So is it moving this step to this step? Is it adding this? New so technology? how long would somebody be in that? So give me an example of the patent. This is brilliant, by the way. I'm writing this down for my own. And if you guys are listening, write this down. So 
somebody comes on as a junior, what's the path and how long are they at each stage typically? Yeah. So what we did, we had the client concierge role for six to eight months. The next one was a loan officer assistant role was another additional six to 12 months. And that loan officer assistant role, your income roughly here in Dallas is around 85,000 a year. The production partner role is another 12, 24 months. And there's a curriculum for each one of these. There's models for each one of these. There's email templates for each one of these. There's standards for each one of these. There's systems for each one of these. There's training manuals for each one of these. And so from A to Z to get from a client concierge dialer to a senior production partner, it's within 26 months. And then what's the income of a production partner? You said 80K, what is the approximate, like what would they be looking the, at? For senior production partners between 100 to 250,000. Right. Yeah. So this goes back to building teams. So you're basically, you define the vision, then you think about the steps to achieve that vision. And then you map those out and then you put somebody on the path. Each time they pass through the gate, they got to improve what was behind them. So how many people have gone through your original version of this? 14 total since 2015. And how much do you think it's improved since those 14 people have gone through it? I've never written one script. I've never written one manual. I've never written, uh, I take that back. I've done maybe about 25, 30% of the tops. And I'm 44, dude. Like these people that are on my team are 23, 24, 27, 28, you know, late 20s. So think of like the type of clients out there right now that are buying homes. Here in Dallas, the average age is dropping for buyers. It, you know, you used to be you're buying a house in your 50s or 40s. Now you're buying a house in your early 20s. And then now we have the social media aspect of it. It's been a great rocket fuel of it, but it's giving me back leverage. So one thing that I did that I look back and it was brilliant, totally blessed that I did it was every single time I hired one of these production partners or got to that level, I got back my time. So production partner handles a lead all the way to closing, 100%. And I handle the realtor relationships. What was beautiful about that is as I got back my time, what did I do at that time? Half of it went to my lifestyle. The other half of it went to going to recruit more mega agents. As I built this and I built these models, I don't go after realtors that do 20 million a year, 10 million a year realtors. We don't really work with them. Our average realtor that we work with, the mega agents, We'll do from 85 million to 300 million in production. So there's plenty of meat on that bone. Right. So when they do that much business, and I am the one that's responsible for going out there being the rainmaker to recruit them, it was literally my production partners sit at their desk back then. They'd come in the morning, they'd have referrals in their inbox, and they'd have appointments on their account. Dude, you just plug in and you just read my scripts, you follow my models and systems, and they're off to the races. Right. And then what is your rhythm like for ongoing training? And so identify your really smart, motivated people, put them in your process. And then what is the rhythm like of how often do you meet with these people and who's meeting with them? And then what does that look like? And, you know, so back then is a little different than what it is now. Now they're established and now they technically don't even need me. But back then I would have an 815 meeting every morning. And we'd go through your success list. Success list breaks down what you're going to accomplish that day in order of priority. Big difference between a to-do list and a success list. Success list is what you're going to do that day in order of priority. You would also dictate how much time you'd spend on each task and then how it's going to benefit you if it's green time, red time. Are you familiar with the green time, red time, and uh, yellow time? Nope. All right, beautiful. Tell me like I'm 10, man. I tell people all the time. I don't know something I'm going to say. <laughs> Explain Super. it to me. Super duper easy. So once a week, we take one day 
and we work for 55 minutes, write down what we did for five minutes. Work for 55 minutes, write down what we did for five minutes. Work for 55 minutes, write down what you do for five minutes. And you work a seven hour day, the last hour of your day, you're grabbing three highlighters. And those three highlighters you're going through, you're highlighting everything that's green time. Green time made you money. So what portion of your day did you spend making money that day? Making money is like doing a realtor meeting, doing an application or a phone to clients, locking in a loan, any of that. Yellow time that yellow highlighter. The yellow time is what did you do that led you to making money? And red time is what's the BS you did all day that made you zero money? Oh, I got on Instagram for 20 minutes. I got stuck in the web and following this reel, whatever the case is. I got stuck on TikTok for 30 minutes. What did you waste portion of your day? So we focus on to get efficiency is 75% of your day to be green time. 75% of your day is the target for you to do dollar productive activities that make you money. And that's how you get to that next level. A loan officer assistant is 50% of their day is dollar productive activities. Production partners, 75% of their day is dollar productive activities. And a senior production partner is 90% of their day dollar productive activities. So that's how you get- What about the cost of years? How would their day look? Their day is actually technically 100% yellow time because all they're doing is calling past clients of my past clients, my realtors, past clients, my CPAs, past clients, my financial advisors, past clients, my insurance, past clients, and setting up appointments on the loan officer's calendar to do an annual mortgage review. So their time 100% of the day is yellow time. Right. Okay. And so anybody who's in a support role, and how did you define yellow time again? Money making was green. Didn't red time is TikTok, you know, going down the rabbit hole, whatever nonsense. How did you define yellow time? It led you to making money. So yellow time would be, hey, I pulled credit in an application to see if they qualify. Yellow time would be, hey, I responded back to, I did a consultation with a client walking through a first-time home borrower program. What led you to making money? So did you come up with this concept or did you learn it somewhere and then just master it? No, I learned it. So do you know who Todd Duncan is by chance? Yep, I do. Yeah, Of course, uh, he's like the Tony Robbins of mortgage industry. Well, I got super duper lucky when I was 19 years old. I met him when I was 19 years old. So he's been a great friend, a great mentor, and a great coach for you know a quarter of a century almost. So I learned it from him. Okay. So do they do this every day still? Or is this just something you did for a season to get everybody they dialed do in? No, they do it every week. They do it one day a week. The loan officer assistants and production partners, I'd watch them do it Thursdays and Fridays when they get like, you know, better prepared for their week. But the senior production partners, no offense, but you have to do it on a Monday. Why do they have to do it on a Monday? Because what happens over the weekend? Our realtors are out showing houses. They come out with contracts right and left. And you're getting a bunch of referrals. You're catching up on emails, this and that. So it's really so a I focusing play. mechanism for the person that's kind of the lead person there to be like, am I getting like dialed in on this and not wasting time? Am I moving the ball further down the field to be able to score? Right. Every day, every day, every day. And that's where I think if you focus on efficiencies, I mean, if you look at, there's a great quote that if you focus on being 1% better a day, 1% better a day, you're twice as good in 70 days. That's good. So what about the concierge? What day would they do it on? Concierge actually would not do it because their time literally all day long is just dialing. So their report mechanism is that they would do it to where they have a minimum of 125 dials a day, minimum of five appointments scheduled a day, and a minimum of three referrals that they pull out per day for referrals to CPAs, financial advisors, family will attorneys. So they're more trackable metrics instead of time metrics. Okay. I have a question for you that is not related. As I said to you, this is going to be a quasi coaching. And when your book comes out, I'm freaking buying your book. We will get you on the show again. And we'll give away some books to the mortgage brokers on this channel, which I do not say this to many people, but 
you've completely impressed the heck out of me. So one of the things that we have at our company, which is unique, is we have these underwriter support. So basically, we do a lot of training of rookies and stuff. They'll go get a file. They don't know what to do with it because you know we have training on how to get the file, how to talk to the client. But then processing is a very difficult thing to learn. So what I have is I have a Zoom room with two underwriting coaches, two and a half now, that are in there 40 hours a week. And they show up with their file and say, hey, here's what I got. What do I do? And they pull up it on the screen. They look at it with them. How would you use this red green, yellow for me to measure what they're doing. Because I count how many visits they get a day and how many visits they get a week, but it's reactive in that they're waiting for people to come into the room. But what would you do with that? Because it doesn't really, you know, and if they help the people get loans approved, it does make the company money because we make money on those loans, but it's not the same as like kind of what you're doing. I'm curious. Yeah. I mean, I did mine differently. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but I'll just tell you how I did mine. The way I structured mine was each senior production partner became a mentor to a loan officer assistant or a production partner. So if they have underwriting questions or they'd have guideline questions, loan structuring questions, how to go after realtor, I was leveraged over my time and I was never bothered with my time. So they go directly to the senior production partner. And then the senior production partner, I'd pay them five, 10 basis points off what the production partner would do. And then it became a way that they can make residual income on the team. So when I built a team annuity, and the team annuities, after you're on my team for five years, you start making five basis points gross profit off what the whole entire team does. And if you build me for more than seven years, it's 10 basis points. So I've got four people that build me more than seven years and 10 basis points of 200 million. Ah, 200 I'm going to have a freaking stroke. This is crazy. This is such a great idea because so many people I meet, sorry to mean to interrupt you there, but <laughs> so many guys that are smart in the mortgage business, they have constant turnover of team. And like, they can't do the 24 seven because they're looking for somebody to replace the person they burnt out. And what you've suggested is like freaking genius. Thanks, man. It's something I came up in 2015 for the fact that I got sick and tired and I tried non-competes, non-solicitations, non-circumvents. I've tried all this legal memo jumbo to protect the people to stay on my team. But before you know it, it was super awesome when the senior production partners would tell the production partners, hey, dude, I'm making $100,000 residual income from the team. Ask me any questions that you want. I'm making $200,000 residual income from the team. Ask me any questions that you want. And when you structure it that way, they don't come to me. For me to have a quality of life, for me to have a quality of lifestyle, and me to have my time back to grow the business, I can't be pulled back of, hey, I've got this loan, and what do I do about this FICO score? Like, I don't want to be bought. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow, this is crazy. It was a great offensive play for me, but I say it could give me back my time to be able to grow more business and also to be able to reinvest time back in my family, my two sons and my wife. But it was also a great idea for me for the fact of, which I just used my imagination to create it, for the fact of being able to, I get super annoyed by dumbass questions and uh, it just allowed me not (laughs) to get annoyed. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Okay. That's really good. So everybody except those support people who you know, that's a defined, they've got more of an output based role, does this once a week. And it's really just an efficiency tracking thing. Do you use NPS? What other tools do you use to track, you know, efficiency or what are the things you're doing to pay attention to how your team's doing? Yeah. So we, our CRM is Jungo and we've got a programmer and coder on staff that just specializes in the Jungo CRM. So, and then our phone system is Ring Central. So he's Zapier certified. So where he connects the Ring Central to the CRM and everything's clicked to dial, but then all the calls are recorded. I can see if you're calling your referrals back. I can see what your lag time is. Like if you get a referral, it gets logged in through your email. I've got the email reader. It goes into Encompass. 
And I can see from your Ring Central number, did it take you an hour to call that referral? Did it take you a day to call that referral? How quickly are you getting to your business? Then I'm able to have tracking around what my brand is in the marketplace that these loan officers are actually doing. Representing. Yeah. So it allowed me to have a factual conversation with them instead of an emotional conversation around like, hey, the realtor's pissed off. You're not calling the leads versus, hey, man, I pulled up the tracker and it shows that you've been averaging this last 10 days, six and a half hours to call your referrals. Like, what kind of baloney is that? Like, and the team standard is two hours. If you don't meet the team standard, I'm going to take away that realtor. I'm going to take away that referral partner. I'm going to take away that income stream and you're off the team. So the standards of time was tracked by the technologies. Right. Okay, man, that's so good. This is great stuff. I don't think I asked you any of the questions that were on the list I sent you, but I don't even care because I'm, I'm I'm having fun and I'm sure people, hope people listening will pick up some stuff from this. If you're not, then you know I don't know how to help you. So yeah, we're going to do a part two. What other suggestions do you have for building teams? So you found them, you put in some processes for basically cloning them, You know, creating a path for them, a career path and a cloning, and then you created a retention plan. So like I see like three parts of this. What other things do you think are critical to make teams function well. And keeping in mind, listeners, you have three other businesses. So I assume you've applied all of the same methodology to your other businesses. So what have you done there? Yeah, so 2013, I bought my first single family and it was March of 2013. Well, if you learn anything about me, I'm about models and systems. So once I figured out models and systems of buying investment properties, I bought nine in 2013 by the end of the year. I bought another 11, another 11 in 2014. I was up to 45 single family by the end of 2016, 1031 exchange, meaning I didn't pay taxes on any of it to apartment complexes. And now I own 11 apartment complexes. So where I do coaching now with my senior production partners is not around how to get more loans in. What I do coaching now, my senior production partners is how do they take their high W2 income? I've got people on my team that make $500,000, $700,000 a year each, each, right? They had over $3 million of commissions a year which I'm happy to pay it. And so they're making all this money, but what do they do? They got to pay the IRS 40% of taxes. So I'm teaching them about cost segregation. I'm teaching them about depreciation assets. I'm teaching them how capital expenditures give you write-offs. And now they own investment properties and they're also investing with me and growing their wealth. So that's part the biggest next step that we've done the last probably two, three years. But that creates a great culture. Also, you know, you're now in business with them on multiple levels. What do you mean by cost segregation? I know what the 1031 rollover is, and I understand that part, but I'm not clear on how do you define that? Yeah. So for instance, say if I buy an apartment complex for $2 million, the cost segregation is an assessment that's done by a government entity that comes in and says, hey, the land is worth X, the building is worth Y, and the assets inside the building. So the sinks, the, the countertops, yep. the light fixtures, so on, so on, are worth X. Whatever that X is, you can depreciate that X. So if it's a $2 million complex, but everything inside is worth, say, $750,000, you can depreciate, cost segregate that $750,000 against your W-2 mortgage income in a cost segregation study for the first calendar year. So I buy an average about four apartment complexes a year. So on average, I'll have about two and a half, three million dollars a year in cost segregation money that offsets my W-2 income and I pay zero in taxes. I talked to a guy recently who told me they purchased a couple jets. They're mortgage guys. And so is this the same function? It's cost segregation where they can take the depreciation of the jet in the first calendar year to offset their W-2 Yeah, so let's just say if you buy a $5 million jet, you can take that $5 million in the first calendar year. You got to buy it through an LLC or through an S-Corp. 
and you've got to structure a way it's within some sort of like business use. You can't just say, hey, I go to the Bahamas once a week with my loan officers. Um, you like to party. Yeah. So, I think they got that part figured out, but it's the same idea. So essentially what you're saying is it's the depreciation. It's the fact that a building is not just a building, it's land, it's other, and yeah. dirt may not depreciate, but all of the insides depreciate and you can apply that depreciation to your income in one year. In yeah. one year. So, in one year. Wow. so what's awesome about that is you can do it on any kind of investment property. You can do it on a single family, you can do it on a duplex, you can do it on an apartment it's complex. It's just the numbers aren't as big. Right. It's just, yeah. I mean, I'm in the apartment complex game. I own 11 apartment complexes and I'll be at 15 by the end of 2023. And I keep buying and cost segregating them because that makes my very blessed multi-million dollar mortgage income tax free. So it'd be silly to sit there. And, and what you realize over time, as you study these models and study the tax code, tax code is built for the wealthy. Right. Unfortunately, not everybody knows how to use it effectively. Yeah. This feels like ninja stuff. Like, wow, this is crazy. Okay, so we talked about teams. The other business you got is some social media type business. What was the most challenging thing? Sounds like you figured out the mortgage business you've got dialed. What was the most challenging thing to copy into a separate business that you were like, oh, I didn't, I had to make some adjustments? Me. In what way? So for example, again, rocket fuel, integrator and visionary. My passion is mortgage. My passion is not social media. My passion is not property management. And it's just not, but with that being said, my passion is on insurance. So finding people that are passionate in that game. So when we talked about 24 seven mindset and the lenses that I had to look through, there's zero business, zero business that I ever start or zero people I ever hire that run a business without them being a driver that can replace me. So what I've learned is very egotistical thing. I said to a buddy of mine back in like 2015, he asked me, how's recruiting going? And I was an idiot. And I said, it sucks, man. I can't find anybody as good as me. And very humbly and wisdom on his part, he says back, well, can you find somebody half as good as you? Egotistically, I respond back and say, yeah, there's a ton of people half as good as me. He goes, cool. Hire two people half as good as you and they'll be able to accomplish what you accomplish. Hire three people half as good as you, and they can do 150% of what you can do. And that, right. I was off the races. So yeah, when I build ding, ding, business, ding. Okay, right. Yeah. So now what I learned from building businesses, I hire and build an integrator and a visionary for those businesses. So it takes two people to replace me. Okay. Wow. That's so good. So your social media business, so that you have somebody whose function is a visionary who kind of gets how to stay ahead of the curve. And then you have somebody who actually makes sure that stuff gets shipped. Yeah, so not necessarily stuff gets shipped, but the um, the execution of what the visionary goes out there and casts for the clients. So if it's like, hey, we're going to build a social media platform or we're going to customize a CRM for you that has got all your custom templates and whatever the case, and we're going to charge you X. So the visionary goes out there and pitches it and sells it, but integrator actually does the work. I love this idea of a visionary integrator, which from Gino Wickman, the book Traction, anything he writes, I'd love. But how do you find an integrator? Because like, I feel like they're so hard to find. Like, what do you look for when you're hiring somebody in that role? Yeah, I look for long-winded, specific answers and a stare. So what I mean by that is- (laughs) What do you mean by that? So like a salesperson, so a visionary, this won't shut up. They tell you about this, tell you about this, this idea, this, this, this. And integrated when they answer your questions, they concisely answer your question, then they shut up and stare at you. I see. That's why the biggest telling tales of an integrator is 
They digest what they say, what you ask, they analyze it. And when you ask an integrator, how'd you analyze that? The integrator's answer is back is, hey, you asked me this question. I compartmentalized your question into these three or four categories. And I structured my answer specifically per each compartment of what you said. So an integrator's answers are very compartmentalized around what the question is, where a visionary's answers are all emotional based and they're all about a dreamy answer. Okay. Now there's a great hell of a book. One of my favorite books ever is called question behind the question. It teaches you how to listen to the emotions behind someone answer your question versus listening to the words behind how somebody answers your question. So if you learn to listen to the emotions, you're looking for tone, you're looking for pitch and you're looking for pauses. If you listen to the emotions behind their questions, you're being sold by them. You're being persuaded by them. Right. So from your conversation with me, then I probably come off like excited, like a little kid, like, oh, this is great. Like the, the motion side, I definitely wired for the undivisionary visionary side. So then, okay, how do you decide who to pay more? So you put this team together, do you pay them the same? Like, I'm curious, or does that not factor into it? No, visionary, remember, an integrated is an SC. So an SC wants what? Stability, stability. and security, right? So if I've got a stability and security, they're going to be high base, a little bit of bonuses. If it's somebody that is an ID or a visionary or a DI, they're going to be about a low base and high upside. Right. Okay. And so the visionary is likely going to fall into a DI category, right? Yes. An ID or a DI. One of the biggest things I learned about all this is the challenge out there is, and you read this in Rocky Fuel, there is a four to one ratio of visionaries to integrators. There's four visionaries for one integrator out there in the marketplace. Integrators are extremely difficult to find, but when you start understanding what they look like, what they smell like, and who you can be like in other industries that have it, like project management in the commercial insurance space, and I just fell across this, but project management for the sake of commercial insurance are phenomenal integrators in any business. Right. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. So there's four times. That's all the influencers. I want to be on social media, but I don't want to do any work, right? Like, shoot. Yeah. All right. So that's fascinating. And so the pay structure is different for each of those folks. And then, okay, what about this? So you have a team because I have like our company's going so quickly. Let's say you got some interpersonal issues between, not major, but just minor challenges. Who fixes that? What's your plan for that. So again, this is back to you just coaching me now. So hopefully you guys listening are, <laughs> what would you say to, so this hypothetical guy who's building this hypothetical mortgage company who has a potential interpersonal dispute between a team member and a, you know, in our case, we have a team member and a commissioned agent or a loan officer. What would you suggest? I would say, what is the vision? What is the guiding light? Get the two people to agree to that. So they, now they exclude them from the equation and then the conversation is, what decision do we have to make today to reach the vision, to reach the guiding light? Because that's more important than anybody's feelings. And then right. it's easy to make that decision. And so do you or one of your senior people supervise this if you need to, or do you try to get them to do it? Um, today, the senior leadership committee handles that from A to Z back in the day, 2013, 14, 15, and all this when I was starting, it was me doing it. But over time, my investment in them and leadership allowed them to be able to do it on their own. And I don't do that anymore. I am literally going to listen to this podcast again. Like, I'm so grateful that we chatted. Where do people find you online? When's your book coming out? And we're going to so, do a part two about a whole other. There's so yeah. many things we can talk about. So everybody write down my email address or when you post this, post my email. The, yeah. Sure. What's your email? Yeah, it's Wally, W-A-L-L-Y 
at empowerlending.com. Super easy. E-M-P-O-W-E-R, lending, L-E-N-D-I-N-G.com. Email me your questions. Email me if you ever want to set up a Zoom or if you're a loan officer or you're starting a branch or you have a branch or whatever the case is. And I'm more than happy to jump on a call or Zoom. I do probably, like, you got to understand, I'm not in production anymore. So I've got eight hours of my day to coach, mentor, and lead loan officers. That's literally my guiding light per day. So the book is like any other entrepreneur, I started writing it myself and the goal was to do 250 words a day and then like life happens and then the Sundays has been my writing day. So I do about 5,000 words every Sunday that I write. So the editor wants to see about 75,000 words and they start editing and I'm roughly around 50,000 words so far. So I would say within six months, it should be in published. Okay. Well, we'll have you on again. Man, this has been amazing. I really appreciate it, Wally. I don't want to offend any of my other guests, but every once in a while I get a guest on, I'm like, dang, I'm glad that we talked. So this yeah, is one of those dude, conversations. Feel free to shoot me an email or shoot me a text or just reach out to me if you have any questions. Or if you want, I'm more than happy to even jump on your leadership committee that you have at your mortgage company and jump on and do a Zoom with them. And if I you would, guys- I would speak. absolutely love that because I think that this is something that I absolutely need. And also once the same thing right now, we're building out the curriculum for the academy. So 24-7 mindset will have an academy to it. And that academy will have all these courses of how to build a team, how to recruit a team, how to interview someone, how to find loan officer assistants, how to find production partners and what to lead them on and how to recruit, how to do an open house. So all of being a curriculum, but all that's being built. Right. Amazing. Dude, this is fantastic. Thanks for chatting. I will be in touch again and we'll do another show for sure. A part two, when your book is out, we're going to give away a bunch of books. We'll buy books and give them away to our audience as a way to like, you know, help you get the word out. Yeah. Cause I just, this has been super helpful for me. I just want to make a difference in the mortgage industry. If anybody knows much about book sales, they're not really crazy profitable. You don't make money in books. It's a loss leader for part of yeah. a bigger plan. So thanks, man. Cool. All right. Hopefully you got some ideas from that conversation. I know I did. I was super excited from that conversation and got a lot of gold from it. And yeah, definitely somebody I'm going to have back on in a future date because I just found it super valuable. In this next segment, I talked to Ben McCabe about renting versus owning and what that conversation would look like for you with the reverse mortgage client. Hey, Ben, welcome to Ask the Experts. Hey, Scott. So what topic are we going to talk about today when it comes to reverse mortgages? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, so working in the reverse mortgage industry, obviously we hear from certain people who have negative ideas about reverse mortgages. You know, a lot of people think that maybe it's not the best idea for customers, but they haven't really thought through it. And one of the kind of the common alternatives that they present is that, you know, people should just sell and rent, right? If they can't afford their mortgage, if they can't afford to live in their home. But if you actually sort of just dig, you know, one step deeper there, becomes quite clear that that's just not a viable option for many, many sort of retired homeowners. And so I just wanted to talk through, you know, why that is and why reverse mortgages is renting in many cases a superior option. Right. The thing is, is that renting when you're younger, it's better to own. And so I'm interested to see the sort of on the tail end of this, what your thoughts it's are. It's on the flip side. Yeah, exactly. It's on the flip side. It's like, but yeah, I definitely have a bias towards ownership over renting. And so I'm curious kind of what you've noticed when it comes to reverse mortgages and this whole conversation around should you just rent or stay in your place, right? Yeah. I mean, so, so I think like really the number one thing that people fail to think about is that renting isn't free. Like renting is expensive and it's getting a lot more expensive, right? So, you know, obviously, especially in the last year as buying a house has become you know less affordable with interest rates going up, more people are turning to renting. I just read the average rent in Canada is up over 12% year over year. So it's over $2,000 a month. Now for a retiree, like let's remember that like our customers are 
primarily living on a fixed income, right? Whether that's CPP, OAS, maybe a little bit of other pension income. But our average customer has just over $3,000 of household income, right? So if you look at the average rent in Canada, so $2,000, that math just doesn't work, right? Like there's just not enough right. left over to cover living expenses. And, and so in that context, you know, the reverse mortgage, when there's no payment attached to it, and so 100% of, you know, what the limited income is can be applied towards living expenses, you know, a significantly superior alternative in that respect. So, yeah, I, I totally agree. Like the thing is that let's say they own a property right now. And so the argument is sell your property and then use that cash, presumably to cover your rent. But that cash is going to dwindle and exactly going to go up and That's, you have no ability to appreciate it within the market. Like there's no upside for you at this point. There's only downside if you take your cash. Yeah, so let's, and, so let's play yeah. that out. Let's play that out. So that's actually my second point here. So the average home price right now is around what? 650K in Canada you know, the average mortgage balance that our customers have coming in is about 250K. So usually that's what we're refinancing out, right? So let's just use that as an example. That leaves you with 400,000 of net proceeds, right? After the sale, you know, that theoretically at $2,000 a month, that could give you like whatever, 16 years of renting, right? Okay, so that could be okay, right? If, if you're a 71 year old, you know, 70, 71 year old borrower, which is our average, that might, you know, take you to the end of your life. But then what are you left with at the end of the day? right? Like you've got nothing left over at the end of the day. And then you have to come back and ask yourself, okay, what was it that you were trying to avoid by not taking the reverse mortgage, that equity degradation, right? Like the degradation of your net asset balance, right? So um, it just doesn't really hang together from a logic standpoint. No, it doesn't. And you're ultimately going to see like 16 years from now, there's no guarantees in life, except death and taxes, as they say, but it's almost, I would say, and the next thing would be that 16 years from now, that house prices will be higher than they are today, even with what's going on. We have a that, and that, and of people like that is even with the issue. That's right. Even with what's going on, it's you wouldn't believe. It's so funny because obviously we talk about this a lot. This idea of home price appreciation and how that will counteract you know the effect of the growing mortgage balance. But people will say, "Oh, but look what's happening in the market right now." People have such a short-term time perspective, right? The chances of zero home price appreciation over the next 15, 16 years is zero. It's I would zero. take that bet all day long. I would bet all of my net worth on that deal. The only way that that could happen, I could say that is if we have a catastrophic world event, like a world war. In that case, we're all out in the streets with donkeys, you know, trying to find food. And that's going to be the least worries. Exactly. If, failing that, I think that, the, you know, so there's, it's not a zero, but it is so close to zero that it is to me insane to think that house yeah. prices will not recover over the next 50 years. So what we try to show people is basically we say, okay, let's just, let's break up the short term versus the long term. So we say, okay, so let's take your $650,000 house right now. Why don't we just assume that that's going to decline by 20% in the next year? Okay. Let's just take a very cataclysmic yeah. view on the market. Okay. So that's going to go down to 520. Okay. Now let's just assume that the house price growth returns to the 40 year Canadian average of 2.7%, right? So nothing like close to the recent rates of growth. In that same 16 years, your home price is going to be back up to 775 right? Which is 125 over what you started with even before that 20% drop, right? So, I mean, this idea that there will be no home price growth, as we said, it's, it just doesn't, doesn't make any sense. Right. Yeah. So rents are only going up. Okay. What's the next sort of point on this? Yeah. I mean, I think I just really kind of like the last point here that a lot of people kind of fail to think about is that we talked a lot about the kind of the financial fundamentals there, which again, we can kind of map out in a quite straightforward manner for people. But the reality is, is that for most of our customers, they're not principally making a financial decision or not solely a financial decision, right? Like during your career, during your working years, the goal is asset accumulation, right? You're focused on building up an asset balance over time. 
But we talk to most of our customers, their goal for the last 15, 20 years of their life is not to pass away with the largest possible net asset balance, right? right? They want to ensure that they're able to live their retirement years comfortably in a place that they're comfortable with and a place they love, right? And that's where, like, where the reverse mortgage comes in is helping people age in place, aging comfortably and living flexibly in their retirement. Right, that makes sense. And then the other piece, I don't know if you touched on this, is that people are living longer. Like ultimately, so that pool of cash that you take out of your house to go and rent, rents are going up. You're probably gonna you know, ideally live longer than you think is the age continues to increase. And so that money's gonna to continue to decline and you're gonna have no appreciation and no possibility of appreciation over the next 15 years. And then there's also emotional effects of moving. Like if you've been in a property for a long time, like my dad doesn't have this because my dad was military. We moved every year and a half. And I tell people, I felt like I was in a witness protection program because I get to know people. And so he's probably moved 35 times. I'm not even joking. And he said to me, Scott, when I die, I want you to dig me up and move me every two years. So I'm like, dad, I'm just not going to bury you because that's not going to happen. But most people, when you move, if you've been in a place for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, there's an emotional thing about moving. There's putting your stuff in boxes. There's downsizing. You're probably not getting into the same size property that you currently were in. If you sell that's right. very unlikely, you're going to be going into something smaller, which now means there's the emotional toll of that. And, yeah. and we don't yeah. talk a lot about this because it's a bit gloomy, but there actually is a lot of research out there in terms of like upsetting the circadian rhythm of people, right? And, and you know, especially for older people and how that can actually accelerate, you know, the development of health problems and things yeah. like that. Stress. So, yeah. yeah. My grandma was able to live in her home. I think she was like 97 or 99 when they finally, but there were stairs and, you know, it was a bit sketch, but she up until that point, and she really wanted to go back home. She did not like, and every time she'd see my uncles, her son, she's like, when am I going home? Like, we can't bring you home when you're like 99, uh, unfortunately. But yeah, I think that if people can stay where they are, they're going to be ultimately happier, even outside all the financial stuff. And there's that whole part of it. So what's your kind of final thoughts on this whole idea of, you know, selling your place and cashing out and renting? How do you kind of sum this up? Yeah, I would just say that, I mean, it's just kind of an idea that a lot of people throw out there when they're not that familiar with reverse mortgages. They haven't fully thought through the sort of the pros and cons of the reverse mortgage versus the alternatives. The reality is, is that, you know, selling and renting thing is just for some customers that might be the right move, but for many, many people, that's just not really a viable alternative financially nor psychologically and in terms of what people are looking to achieve in the latter decades of their life. So, um, you know, I think that's where our solution can come in for a lot of people. Okay. Awesome. And if you listen to this and this team at Bloom can help you out, they use reverse mortgage, bloomfin.ca. They're experts on this and uh, they can help you with any of these, with these conversations, as well as they can just take your client, the whole process and take it from end to end. As long as you've had a conversation with them and explained, you know, like we've talked about in the past, you just got to understand a little bit of the basics and you guys can help them out. Thanks, Ben, for coming chat with me. Thanks a lot, Scott. All right. Thanks again for listening to this episode. I really appreciate you as a listener. I'm noticing the downloads is actually going up each week, which is awesome. We're seeing the total downloads continue to increase across this show and the rest of our network. So thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. I would encourage you to go check out the outofmortgagebrokering.com website. You can set up a free search account and search all of our past episodes. And they're even transcribed in there. You can get like, you can see the text. The key is to make sure it's in full screen mode because it does not work well in half screen expand that sucker to full screen and it works like crazy. So check it out. And thanks again for listening to this episode. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.